Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I have a very distinguished guest. Professor Michael Wheeler is here to talk with us about his latest book that he published with Cambridge University Press. The book is called The Year That Shaped the Victorian Age, Lives, Loves, and Letters of 1845. Professor Wheeler is a leading cultural historian of the Victorian age whose books and talks are lively and multidisciplinary. Uh, Professor Michael Wheeler has published extensively with Cambridge University Press, Yale University Press, Longman and Macmillan and has lectured in 18 countries outside the UK. Michael, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Morteza. It's very nice to be with you. Great. Uh, Michael, you are a leading historian of Victorian age, and I've enjoyed reading your books and also listening to some of your lectures on YouTube. Uh, can you please uh, generally introduce yourself to us and tell us what attracted you to the history of Victorian age? How did you become a professor of uh, Victorian age? Well, these things are always a long story. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, when I was at Cambridge University, Magdalen College in the late 1960s, I had a wonderful tutor who was tremendously keen on Victorian culture. And uh, I rather fell in love with, with the Victorian age. Uh, I did my doctorate at UCL in London uh, on Elizabeth Gaskell um, and then became a, a young lecturer up at Lancaster University uh, near the Lake District. Um, and began really a lifetime of research in Victorian uh, studies. I was, my background was literary, but I've gradually become what you can only describe as a cultural historian. And so I've written, I've now done te- 10 or so books, um, five of them with Cambridge, that really have looked particularly at the impact of religion on Victorian culture. Um, I'm now a visiting professor of the University of Southampton, and um, I, I spend all my time really uh, writing books. I'm now currently writing a new uh, spiritual life of uh, Gladstone, the great prime minister. So um, this is something I've been engaged with for over 50 years, Morteza. You, you actually answered my last question because I always ask if there's any other book you're currently working on. So I'm really excited to know you're working on a, a, bio, a, a you said a spiritual biography, right? Yes, there's a new series with Oxford University Press mm. called Spiritual Lives. Oh. And the idea is um, you take household names like Queen Victoria or W.E. Gladstone, who are not known basically for their religious lives. Um, and this fascinates me. I've worked on Gladstone, you know, all my life in a way, uh, and have been very involved at Gladstone's library. I've been trust- a chairman there. And so that's what I'm doing at the moment. Mm, 
Great. Uh, let's talk about the book, The Year That Shaped the Victorian Age. I'm really interested to know how the idea of this book came to you and also what sources you used to write this book. Because in this book, you, you talk about a lot of letters, correspondence between literary figures, between politicians. So I'm really interested to know how the idea of the book came to you and also the types of uh, sources you used to, to, to write the book. Sure. sure. Yes. Well, it was quite an interesting development, actually, because most of my books cover the whole Victorian age. OK. And in fact, the book before this one was a history of the Athenaeum, the great club in London, which covers 200 years, the 19th century and the whole of the 20th century, up to its bicentenary, which is, is next year. So I've, I've been writing these these books that cover a huge terrain. And. In the process, this year, 1845, kept popping up on the radar. And in one of my books on Catholicism called The Old Enemies, I'd announced in that book that 1845 was a, a year of crisis uh, in the Church of England. Uh, and I, because the, the date kept popping up, I thought I'd have a jolly good look at it. And I began by saying to myself, I need a completely different methodology for research. If you're going to do a book on one year or investigate to begin with, you know, one year, how do you do that? Well, I opened a spreadsheet and I had 365 lines, one for each day of the year. And then I needed columns. And in terms of the sources you're asking me about, the first column was events and the second column was the Times newspaper and then Punch and then the Illustrated London News and then various key figures like Gladstone, like Newman, like Dickens and so on going across. So I've now got eight columns and 365 right. And then I started, I was drawing on 50 years of reading, of course, but I'm, I read the Times for every, every day. I read the Punch and Illustrated News for every week. And I drew upon my knowledge of and letters of all those major figures. OK, this took 12 months. And at the end of it, I had I made a note of it. I realized that there were 431 individuals mentioned on this enormous spreadsheet. So I opened another spreadsheet called Dramatis Personae. OK, so I've got all this material and then I color coded it. I color coded it by theme and there emerged various points in the year when these big problems came to the fore in the culture. OK. And in fact, it turned out that there were four areas where 1845 was a year of crisis. It wasn't only religion. It was also Ireland. It was also the condition of England. You know, and the more I looked at it, the more I thought, yes, there is a there's an important book here because it, se it seemed by the end of my years gathering of material, but it's not only an age of crisis. Um, it's also a time of a communications revolution. Um, and so 
there are the sources I was looking at, you know, letters of individual writers, politicians and so on, historical sources, and of course the whole of Victorian letters really, which I'd absorbed over over many, many years. The communications crisis that we ought to talk about um, became a big part of the story mm. because Roland Hill had been agitating in the 1830s about the problem of letter correspondence in, in Britain. Because if I'm in London and I send a letter to Edinburgh before the penny post, I was paying 16 pennies, sorry, 17 pennies, which is a lot. And the person receiving the letter would have to pay it. Roland Hill agitated to bring in the penny post, which came in in 1840, where if I'm sending the letter, I can put a stamp on an envelope. And it's one penny. And it would be the same price going anywhere. Okay, this was a total revolution. And suddenly the amount of mail increased. Secondly, the railways. The rapid expansion of the railways, the fact that there were even special coaches on which mail was sorted, meant that by 1845, the penny post was moving at great speed. The world suddenly gets much smaller. This is a revolution. And by the way, in the same year, the telegraph. Mm. So, you know, the terrible towel murder that occurred in January 1845 was the first time someone had been arrested using the new telegraph. And that led to his towel, the murderer, being hanged. And he was caught by telegraph. So communications accelerate enormously. And when you put it together with this ferment of activity, in terms of dealing with these crises that really did shape the Victorian age, I realised that actually 1845, my conclusion was, 1845 is the crucible in which the Victorians were for the first time really tested in this new industrialised urban world as they grappled with their problems. The Queen's only 26 years old. And the Victorian age, I think, was was shaped by events and responses to events in 1845. Mm. Uh, before I ask my next question, I was really amazed by your research methodology. I think it should be a case of studying uh, research courses in humanities because rarely do we approach humanities this systematically. And I can imagine how much time you must have spent on that. Uh, because we don't really do coding in humanities. Well, some students in sociology might do, or or, or psychology. Yeah. Well, I was really amazed by this research methodology you're, that you have. You're quite right, Morteza. And I mean, I use this methodology simply because I hadn't used it before. I'm, you know, I sort of invented it. I've always used chronologies, but most chronologies uh, that you will have used and I've used are for a year, aren't they? So you have a whole year, then the next year, you know. So I have a chronology from 1540 right up to the present. This was a different thing. This was a daily chronology. So it's just a way in which you can actually really gather data and then analyse it. Mm -hmm. 
for a focused period of time. And uh, in 1845, as you mentioned, there was this uh, communication revolutions, penny post and railway. And I'm guessing this was one of the main reasons that it also impacted the pace of political events or the way they unfolded or the, the, the public came to know major, let's say, scandals or major political events. Is that right? It is right. Um, in terms of politics, we need to remember that when Parliament was sitting, you've got the House of Commons and the House of Lords. We need to remember that in 1845, it's only 11 years since the old Palace of Westminster was half destroyed by fire. And so actually the House of Commons was meeting in the old House of Lords chamber. But basically the legislators in the Commons and the Laws, laws they gather during the parliamentary time, the terms of Parliament. And that's when London society gets really busy and so on. We've then got to remember you've got the recess. You've got all those months when Parliament are not meeting. Now, when they are meeting and every, all the politicians are gathered in Whitehall, the post between ministries was passed by messengers. So each ministry would have a string of messengers and you'd say, take this over to the Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street. And the, men, the messengers would be running around Whitehall. What happened during the recess? The answer is that most of the senior politicians remember that even Gladstone's cabinets were mainly drawn from peers of the realm. They had their estates. They had their big houses all over England. And sometimes they were in Scotland. Suddenly, cabinet ministers who were during the recess, say during the long summer recess, there are events going on all around the world. And it's not only the, the foreign secretary who has to respond to these events. And so the mail going between leading politicians during the recess by the penny post. And it certainly changed the shape of events. Um, let me give you an example that's quite amusing. Um, the great problem of the Maynooth grant. Maynooth was the main college in uh, Ireland for the training of Roman Catholic priests. And it was very controversial that the British government was actually funding a Roman Catholic college in Ireland. And of course, Ireland was you know, part of the nation. But it's a Protestant nation. Okay. Gladstone, he cannot support an increase in the Maynooth grant as a cabinet minister because he published a book in which he said that was impossible. Okay. And so he's warning his prime minister by mail that he might have to resign. The prime minister, Peel, is very frightened of this because Gladstone was so powerful in the cabinet in, at the beginning of 1845 that if it had got out, if the news had got out, maybe the government would have to resign. So there's Gladstone up at Harton Castle in North Wales. And he writes a letter and he writes it to his prime minister. The problem was he forgot to seal the envelope. He sends it off and he thinks, oh, no, what have I done? It's basically a state secret. Peel 
who's on his estate, gets the letter. He says, oh, my goodness, anybody could have read this. What does he do? He sends it on to the Home Secretary, Sir James Graham. He sends it on rather like an attachment with email. Right. And he said, look at what Gladstone's done. He sent this open. All the all the post office staff could have read this letter. So James Graham writes back and says, don't worry. You, you, the prime minister, can't understand what Gladstone's talking about. And do you honestly think that a post office um, executive is going to understand what the hell he's talking about? Of course they're not. And then the Home Secretary on his estate, writing to the prime minister on his estate, says, but don't you make the mistake if Gladstone resigns, you must let him resign. And so, you know, in terms of power, who's in, who's out, who's where policy is going, the exchange rapidly of information had a very shaping influence. And when people wanted to make an impact in politics, and politics would extend to religion, they would often write a pamphlet together, a joint pamphlet. Okay, do you know that there was one case, the William Ward case in Oxford, when a bunch of really, you know, the clergy and laity who were on the liberal side, they wanted to create a pamphlet together. One of them was sitting in the London Library in, you know, in, in central London. One was in Cambridge. One was out in the deep country. They sent around a draft. Mm. It circulated. For just and in just eight days, they went from the first draft to a finished draft and sent it to the publisher. Now, that was unheard of previously. You and I could do it. You and I could do it today using email and chatting to each other by Teams or Zoom or whatever. Sure, we take it for granted. Now, imagine the revolution this was in 1845. It's fascinating, yeah. Uh, and, and that story you just mentioned about the Prime Minister and uh, Sir Robert Peel, uh, it, it happened around the time when there was this looming danger of famine in Ireland. And yes. uh, in your book, you also talk about Corn Law. I'm, I'm really interested to know more about Corn Law, what it was, how it was abolished, and also the reaction of politicians to, uh, to the danger of famine in Ireland. Yes, I mean, this was... A, a truly tragic and dreadful, dreadful story. The fact was that Ireland, which had a population of around 8 million, uh, there was a huge impoverished peasantry in Ireland. This is the period, of course, of the so-called ascendancy, the Protestant ascendancy in in Belfast, what is now known as Northern Ireland. Um, and then the bulk of what is... Now, era, the bulk of Ireland was, of course, Roman Catholic. Now, many people who lived in a very humble little house, almost a hut, they had a little bit of land. And in this land, they planted potatoes and they would work hard planting the potatoes. And then they sort of sit around waiting for the potatoes to grow. And then they'd have to look after the crop. And then the potatoes would come along and they could just about live. What happens in 1845 is the beginning of a potato blight. And people began to find, not only in Ireland, but also in England and Scotland, that potatoes 
had a blight which made them inedible. This caused a very rapid crisis for the poorest people in Ireland. Meanwhile, the Tory government under Sir Robert Peel, Tory governments had always made the protection of the Corn Laws central to their policy. What the Corn Laws did was to make sure that the price of corn, by corn we mean cereal crops, could not go below a certain level in order to protect, it's called protection, to protect the farmers because you've got an agricultural society before industrialization. And Toryism was about, in a way, conserving a society which is very dependent on farming and growing our own food. Now, the problem was with increased urbanization that those who made bread their staple food, we're talking now about England, Scotland, Wales, bread was too expensive. And so there was a big force based in Manchester and London called the Anti-Corn Law League, led by Cobden and Bright, which was saying, no, 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 no. We must abolish the corn laws and we must free up the price of bread so that the poor industrial workers of the north of England, for example, the Midlands, they can buy bread at a reasonable cost. So you've got a huge tension, okay? Now, Peel realised, and by the way, was corresponding about this during the recess in the summer. He was getting news by post about this potato blight in Ireland. He was getting news about the scientists who were rapidly sent across to Ireland to investigate how can we how can we protect the crop? How can we save these potatoes? All of this was done by post. And Peel realised that in a crisis like this, even he, even as the prime minister in a conservative Tory government, must now abolish the Corn Laws. Now, the problem was when he took that to cabinet in December 1845, the only way we can save the Irish is abolishing the Corn Law. Because by doing that, we could have cheaper cereal crops going to Ireland in order to save them with bread. Only three of his cabinet ministers could approve the idea. He goes down to discuss this with the Queen and Albert. The Queen, again, she's still in her mid-twenties. And the Queen says, look, we better step aside here and let's see if we can get Lord John Russell to form a government, a Whig government, and see if he can bring in the Cornwall. He was brought down from Scotland. It took him four days to get there because he was in a, you know, miles and miles and miles. He gets down there. And he chickens out. He can't form a, ca- a government. So Peel comes back to power, goes on into 1846, and six months later manages to abolish the Corn Laws and thereby splits the Conservative Party in two. And the government falls, <clears throat> and you then get the Peelites, who are the more, if you like, more liberal, more slightly more to the left Conservatives, And then you get the protectionists. And in come, you know, Whig governments that then become 
liberal governments later in the 19th century. So, you know, <clears throat> now all of this was debated and one of the things I haven't mentioned yet, it wasn't only in private letters. What happened was, Malteza, that <clears throat> many of the pamphlets that were brought out, political pamphlets saying yes to the Cornwalls, no to the Cornwalls, many of these pamphlets were written in a form of letters. So it would be a letter to Sir Robert Peel or a letter to a friend on the subject of blah, 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 blah. And then a little pamphlet would be brought out, 20, 30, 40, 50, up to 100 pages long, printed, published very, very quickly, but presented as a letter. Why? A letter has authority. A letter is signed. A letter is immediate. And so it's not only private letters whizzing around or, or letters on public matters. It's pam pamphlets being published in the form of a letter. Plus, 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 plus. Letters to the press. So letters going to the Morning Chronicle. You know, letters going to the Times. These were given high profile. Letters were scattered among articles. And you would write, Sir. You know, and you put your point of view and they had a huge influence on politics. So, you know, private letters between those in power, letters that are public in the form of pamphlets and letters to the Times that everyone would read in their Times, you know, over breakfast each day. Uh, and it's quite fascinating to know the role of post in in in, in 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 unfolding all these events or in the way that politicians also the public came to know some of these political events and i'm also interested to know now you talked about some of these correspondences you talk about one figure if i'm pronouncing the name correctly joseph or joseph i joseph <laughs> joseph yeah joseph mazzini who was he because yes. his private letters open and created a scandal. So can you talk about this uh, uh, this guy in, in the book? Giuseppe Mazzini was an Italian nationalist and Italy at the time was <clears throat> very much under the, the boot of Austria and Italian nationalists were could be regarded either as freedom fighters or as terrorists, depending on which side you were on. Basically, Mazzini was kicked out of Italy. He had to flee from Italy in order to avoid imprisonment and execution. He moves to Switzerland, but he continues to be in touch with his companions. And young Italy becomes a force for politics. And then he's kicked out of Switzerland and France. And he ends up in the freest capital in Europe, namely London. He arrives in London in the later 1830s and establishes himself as uh, a book reviewer, for example, and a literary figure. And he becomes a great friend of Thomas Carlyle and James Welsh Carlyle, who support in many ways these principles and yet realise that he's, you know, um, he's a typically um, impassioned individual, you know, full of sound and fury. 
but very much from a Christian point of view. You know, he 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 regarded his mission as a sacred mission. Anyway, the government, with Peel as Prime Minister and Sir James Graham as Home Secretary, the government are under pressure to keep an eye on certain individuals. And the question that would worry the Austrian government, for example, is, is Mazzini still stirring up trouble in Italy? How can we find out? Well, it was a tradition that the post office could be instructed by the Home Secretary on behalf of the Cabinet to inspect the mail of certain individuals. It was quite rare, but it had been done before. It was discovered that the letters of Giuseppe Mazzini were being opened. And the scandal it caused was enormous. And the person blamed for it was the Home Secretary of the day. Now, if ever you were to move to the UK, Malteza, and become a, a politician, can I recommend you do not become a Home Secretary? Because on, on the first day of your job, you discover you're in court for about 17 different cases have been brought against you because you're Home Secretary. Okay, so this is in a way familiar territory. But at this time, this was worked up as a, an enormous scandal that hit the headlines. It had started the year before in 1844 and a radical called Duncan stood up in the House of Commons and exposed what was going on. The Home Secretary at first did a typically English thing of saying, oh, well, you know, I don't think there's much to this and I don't see why I should answer your question. But of course, Duncan kept going at him and gradually through publications and through people reading in the in the newspapers accounts of the debates going on, there was a lot to look at here. And in 1845, it erupted again, erupted as a public scandal. And it turned out that when you sealed a letter, you would put your sealing wax on it. OK, so you close the envelope and you put sealing wax on it in order to prevent tampering. It turned out there was a special office in the post office that was very carefully slicing through a seal. And some of Mazzini's friends, other radicals in England, they they looked very, very carefully at their mail and they could see that actually their seals had been cut through and then melted again. And so do you see how this became a scandal? Now, what's this about? Yes, it's about politics, but it's also about a tradition of privacy. And so when the Penny Post came in and when for the first time people were having to get a joiner or carpenter to come along and cut a little hole in their front door to put the mail in, you and I might think that was normal or you might have a mailbox at the bottom of your garden or whatever. No, 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 this is new. This is new stuff. Uh, Thomas Carlyle described it as Roland Hill's slit in the door. OK, um, the whole point was the post office was completely had to be. It had to um, honour the privacy of the individual citizen. Because the whole image of Britain was and still is based on a code of honour. 
The word honour was the most important in the House of Commons and people's honour was at stake. And the honour of the post office was that you could send private correspondence sealed and be, it would not be tampered with. So they're wonderful punch cartoons of poor old Sir James Graham peering into people's letters. And he knew, he knew that this is what he'd be remembered for. Uh, quite fascinating. And it kind of reminds me of even today's uh, arguments about privacy, you know, with with uh, with the Internet, our cell phones yeah. and the role of uh, intelligence agencies, CIA or big corporates like Google and Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I've kind of given up hope of having any privacy and I, I don't have really any important information. Uh, you know, to cause me a scandal. But but when I read your book, and now that you're talking about it, it sounds very, very familiar even today in 21st century. And another uh, part of the book that I was really interested in, you know, see, your book is called, uh, so the year that shaped the Victorian age, you have lives, loves, and letters. So you talk about politicians, but at the same time, you also talk about some literary figures such as Thomas Carlyle or... Uh, or, or you talk about Elizabeth Barrett, Robert Browning, John Ruskin. So I'm interested to know why in this book you included the pro private letters of these figures. They're not private anymore because they've been published, but the letters of these figures, these literary figures as well. So it seems that it's it's not all about politics, but it's also about the social lives of important figures uh, in the Victorian age as well. This is a very good very good question, Morteza. And the answer is that earlier in our discussion, what I didn't mention is that there was another kind of crisis going on. For several of the figures I've mentioned already, I've mentioned Robert Peel, I've mentioned Gladstone, Sir James Graham. These are political figures. They all went through their own, they went through in their own lives changes that were extraordinary in 1845 largely because of the political events I've been talking about. What amazed me was that I also discovered that the figures you've just listed, those literary figures, they went through very important changes in their private and literary lives in 1845. So if we take them, the first one, let's take Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth Barrett is an invalid, as you know, and there she is living in, you know, a, a room in central London. Um, and for her, the post is incredibly important because she can't get out to see people, but she can write letters. Harriet Martineau, who wrote a, a book about invalidism, she said it was the most important invention for the people of England, the penny post, because... In a way, heart could speak to heart. You could share stuff over distance. OK, Robert Browning greatly admires Elizabeth Barrett's poetry and writes her a little letter in which he says how much he admired her. And it was the beginning of a friendship that became love that in 1846 became marriage. And it's a famous love story. And the extraordinary thing is that the correspondence between them, you know, I call it love by post because you can see them falling in love. And what interested me was all kinds of, they had all kinds of problems because suddenly a letter didn't arrive. And it turned out that one of the servants in the Barrett's houses 
had failed to notice. It had fallen into a letter box and they hadn't noticed this letter. So a general panic all round. And then there's the question of these letters. What if Elizabeth Barrett's father got hold of one of these? You know, so there's a whole drama that I look at here um, in terms of communication. And then John Ruskin. Ruskin spends seven months of 1845 in Italy. He's working, he's doing research for his second volume of Modern Painters. It made it, the book that made him famous. But he's writing home every day to his father, the devoted father who is funding Ruskin. He pays for everything. He's, he's an amazing merchant, wine merchant. Uh, his father, John James Ruskin. Why does Ruskin write to his father every day? Why does the father write to his son every day from England? In order to keep the bond between father and son, which they have when they're together in England. Because Ruskin was brought up by these over-devoted parents who kind of loved him to death and caused all kinds of psychological problems. So I look at that correspondence and it was a very important time of transition for Ruskin in terms of his this crucial relationship with his father. So it's very, very personal stuff. But writing, of course, from abroad, so it takes a, a week to arrive. And then the Carlyles. Well, Thomas Carlyle is editing and then publishing Oliver Cromwell's letters. Letters and speeches. It's absolutely brilliant. And it changes England's idea of Oliver Cromwell, who had been demonised you know, as the regicide, he killed a king. And Thomas Carlyle, through the letters and speeches, is arguing, this is a great man, and we must rehabilitate his reputation. And he succeeded. So what Thomas Carlyle's doing is gathering lots of letters, but he's also in love with an aristocratic woman, and he's writing very personal letters to her, Harriet Berry. His wife, Jane Welsh Carlyle, is upset, jealous and confused of a relationship with Lady Harriet that was not a sexual relationship, but it was a meeting of minds. And it was a, and this was as bad, as it were, to Jane Welsh Carlyle um, as, as it would have been if it had been adultery. And he, she's writing to her cousin in Scotland, pouring out her grief. And so we get... Again, this crisis in a marriage that was a notoriously difficult marriage. It was said of Thomas and Jane, thank goodness they married to get, they married, because at least then there were just two difficult people who were unhappy. Whereas if they'd married others, there would have been four unhappy people. They were difficult individuals. And so these are highly personal transitional moments, all of which occurred in 1845. And they are, all these correspondences, by the way, also respond to the other crises I've been talking about. Uh, uh, and as I said, that I, I found that quite fascinating because uh, you're a cultural historian and it's also part of the culture of the time, especially these figures were very influential uh, yes. in, in forming what we today call Victorian age. Uh, yes. uh, there is another, there are two other people in the book, um, but I must mention to our listeners that there are 
the book uh, has a lot of fascinating stories. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover them all or talk to talk about them. So I do strongly recommend that our listeners pick up the book and read it. But uh, there are two other uh, figures that I'm really interested in to know more about, Daniel O'Connell and Thomas Campbell, Thomas Campbell Foster. Because they, they again talk about Ireland and um, uh, Thomas Campbell Foster's account of the – wrote an account which is called The Condition of the People of Ireland, which impacted the public – the British public opinion. I, I would appreciate if you could talk about that part of the book as well. Okay, thank you. Well, Daniel O'Connell, the liberator, um, was the leading figure in Irish politics who was fighting the union between England and Ireland. And he wanted the repeal of the Union. He'd been born in 1775, um, Roman Catholic, of course, uh, trained as a barrister, was a brilliant barrister back in Dublin, uh, and became uh, a very, very active politician. He became a member of parliament, of course. And his main enemy in 1845 was, of course, the prime minister of the day. Sir Robert Peel, leader of the Tory party. And what happened was that I was fascinated to discover, I don't think it's been much written about, I mentioned earlier parliamentary recesses. Can you imagine being editor of a leading national newspaper the moment Parliament dissolved for the summer? What's your paper going to talk about? I call it the news drought. What happened in August 1845 is that Delaney, the young editor of the Times, he did two things. First of all, he led a campaign to expose another scandal at Andover, where I live, actually, where the workhouse was an appalling place, you know, terribly mismanaged. And it was a ghastly result of Paul Law Amendment Act. And... He decided that the various commissions that were being written about poverty in Ireland weren't good enough. And so he wanted to send the Times Commissioner to Ireland to investigate. He chose a man, Thomas Campbell, Foster, who was a barrister, but also a journalist. He was the son of a journalist and, like Charles Dickens, had learned his trade sitting up in the gallery in the House of Commons reporting on debates, and in fact, like Dickens, had invented his own system of shorthand. And he had covered some riots in Wales, and he'd covered some riots in East Anglia. He was just the man, because Ireland was in a ferment of activity through O'Donnell, through the work, you know, of repeal. So he was sent across... And his job was to write a letter back to the Times on a very regular basis as he travelled throughout Ireland, reporting on what he found. This caused a furore. First of all, the English reading public, reading their Times, reading these long accounts of poverty. And in fact, Foster's interpretation of what was causing the poverty, which was partly racial, he made a difference, he made a distinction between the Celts and the Saxons. Okay, controversial stuff. Um, And of course, in Ireland, it went down like a lead balloon. 
because Daniel O'Connell and his sons were absolutely incandescent with rage. So what did Foster do? He got himself down to County Kerry and he got himself down to the estate that actually belonged to Daniel O'Connell himself. And he wrote in one of his letters to home to the Times, one of the worst examples of extreme poverty, where there are little hovels, where there are no windows, where the smoke from the fire has to escape through the roof, where some of these poor people didn't even own a chair. Guess what? They're in the actual estate owned by Daniel O'Connell. Now, this is incendiary stuff, you can imagine. And this is where letters which have been commissioned by Delaney to the press had a huge impact. And of course, the Times was very, very influential. And so the influential on those who actually held the power in London or in Belfast in the ascendancy, the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland. They were very much swayed by that interpretation of what caused poverty. Uh, Professor Michael Wheeler, I cannot thank you enough for your time to talk to us about your wonderful book. As, an, as, as I said, there are lots and lots of characters in this book. You even talk about uh, Charles Dickens. So I uh, and I wish we had time to talk about um, more more people and more aspects of the book. But I do strongly ask our listeners to 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 get the book and read it. It's a fascinating read, and and I think one of the it's also less expensive than most Cambridge books. It is. You're right. Yeah, under thirty pounds. Yeah, that's right. Given the and it's hardcover, I guess as well. It's still is hardcover edition. Yeah, and it's quite cheap for for a Cambridge book. You're right. And I guess one of the fascinating aspects of your writing style is 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 its lucidity and how clear and accessible it is, despite the fact that it's a Cambridge book. But when you read it, it's it it doesn't really feel like an academic book, but it's filled with different sources and valuable information. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time uh, and talking with us on New Books Network. Great pleasure, and uh, I hope hope maybe speak to you again sometime. Sure. Thank, Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye.